Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside Road Horror Show. All right, we are in Missouri this week. It's Missouri Part Two. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a while, but uh, I do have some fun, kind of weird laws that are the law of the land in Missouri. Very nice. Uh, they kind of fall into two categories because there was a lot of laws that were sort of like, well, that makes sense. These are all good, solid laws. And then there were some that were just super weird. <laughs> so <laughs> I decided to break it out into some serious road-related laws that are present on the Missouri books. That sounds good to me. Now, first, it's illegal to park your car and let the engine idle because it could scare horses. Okay. Another horse uh, there's law. There's laws like that in Pennsylvania. Yep, yep, another horse law. This one kind of made me crack up a little bit, speaking of Pennsylvania, because I've definitely seen this all the time in the streets of Philadelphia. Salesmen are not allowed to pedal any items in the middle of the road while shouting at vehicles. <laughs> so much for picking up those flowers for, for mom or maybe some pretzels. I don't know. Yeah. Is that like just a Philly thing? I don't know. I think it is a Philly thing, <laughs> but I've, I've definitely seen it. This one was kind of weird, too. So it says, don't mess with other people's cars and especially don't honk someone else's horn. According to the law, quote, climbing into another, another person's vehicle, sounding a horn, is prohibited without permission. No person shall, without permission of the owner or the person in charge, climb upon or into any motor vehicle or trailer. I'm like, okay. Alrighty, so don't jump in strangers' cars and honk their horns, guys. Got it. No pranks. Fine, Missouri. I had a friend that used to honk my horn when she was in the car with me all the time. I'm just like, stop that, please. That's <laughs> so infuriating. It's because you have to, like, smack plus drive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this one would be, Eden, you can help me out and tell me if this is actually a thing or not, because I was like, this can't be a real thing, but... If you're running late and need to shave in the car, you need a permit before taking care of your whiskers. Who the hell shaves in the car? Right? Like, I feel like even with, like, the automatic razors, like, the electric razors, that, like, it's still hard to shave your face. Yeah, and that's a lot to do while driving. You should not be, that's not safe at all. Um, I don't know, but I've seen women, like, put on makeup while driving. Yeah, I have so it it's possible that men could also shave their faces while driving. It's just weird to me. It just seems terrifying. Because I don't think I would ever put on makeup while driving either. Like, that's just bizarre. Like, I get lipstick. Like, I get pretty good at the art of, like, putting on lipstick blind. But, like, eye makeup, no. No, because your eyes should be on the road. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so that's it for the road-related laws. But then I also stumbled upon some not-so-sexy, sexy laws in the show-me state. Yeah. I love not so sexy, sexy laws. I know. So first one's pretty, pretty common. I think we come across this a lot, but oral sex is illegal in the show me state. It's illegal in most states, which is just bizarre because everyone does it anyway. Shh. I mean, no, we are all good law abiding citizens. <laughs> in some areas of Missouri, four or more women are prohibited from renting an apartment or house together because it could be considered a brothel. A brothel. What fun. And I think that one's also, like, that pops up on the books in a couple states, including, like, Pennsylvania, I think. Yeah. I've seen that one before in other states. And then last and most likely the weirdest, women are prohibited from wearing corsets in Missouri. So, sorry if that's, like, your sexy thing, but you can't do it in Missouri. Weird. 
But the creepy thing about the law is the reasoning behind it. The law basically says that women can't wear corsets because, quote, the privilege of admiring the curvaceous, unencumbered body of a young woman should not be denied the normal, red-blooded American male. What the fuck? Yep. Yep. That is really creepy. Right? I wonder if there's another law in the books that say women need to smile anytime a man looks at them in yeah, Missouri. Right. Oh, oh, God. <laughs> no, I'd like full body chills. Just, ugh. So that's the weird ass laws I found in Missouri. <laughs> that was gross. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. I try. I am currently surrounded by a shit ton of crafting items. Oh. Yes. I was like, how am I going to record? I guess I should push this stuff over. <laughs> <laughs> Just surround. Got to craft into the new year and get some things in a row. Exactly. There's just like bags from Michael's all over the place and all sorts of stuff from the dollar store. And it's nuts up in here. Well, I'm excited to see what you create. I am too, actually. Wait, do you not have I'm a plan? I'm also excited for your story. Oh, yeah. It's a pretty good one. I think you'll like it. Uh, I can dive right in. And I, I particularly think you'll enjoy my intro today, Eden. Okay. Hit me with it. All righty. So today we're heading back to St. Louis which is the second largest city in Missouri. And since you did such a good job discussing St. Louis in our first Missouri episode, I figured I'd tell the roasters a little bit about St. Louis and its unique cuisine before I dive into my true crime story. Ooh, yes, I will like that. See, I know, I know the way to your heart is through your stomach, so. Absolutely. <laughs> now, since St. Louis is a port city and it's also considered the gateway to the West, much of its culinary history is influenced by people who settled there or sometimes people who are just passing on through. Eden, I know you love good grub, so I'm curious to get your take on some of these dishes. Ooh, okay. Let's see. So first up, there's St. Louis-style barbecue. Not to be confused with the slow-smoked Kansas City-style barbecue from the other side of the state of Missouri. St. Louis barbecue generally refers to grilled pork spare ribs that are cut in this particular way that removes the cartilage and rib tip, so you have this like perfect uniform rectangular-shaped rack of ribs. Hmm, okay. I'm now, down with that. I know. Who doesn't love like a perfect, like symmetrical piece of meat? It's delightful. Hell yes. Now, after they grill the ribs, they are heavily sauced in this very sweet, lightly acidic, sticky tomato-based barbecue sauce that they usually make without liquid smoke. Hmm. Yeah. So it's kind of almost more like a ketchup-y kind of sauce versus like a that's... smoky barbecue sauce. Yeah. That's what I'm imagining. I, I don't know if I'm about that, but I'll try it. <laughs> Well, apparently the folks in St. Louis love it because St. Louis consumes more barbecue sauce per capita than any other city in the U.S. So it's like their thing. Okay. Yeah. I figured it sounds a little weird, but I'd try it. Exactly. Next, there's the St. Louis style pizza. I feel like we've talked a little bit before about the, the various regional variations on pizza. Like there's everything oh, yeah. from like that charry New England style pizza to like the perfect New York foldable style. Mm -hmm. And then the, it might as well be a casserole Chicago deep dish, right? Yes, exactly. And I'm, to me, nothing beats a New York style pizza. I 100% agree. I'm, I'm a sucker for just be able to fold it up and walk down the street with it. It's perfect. Exactly. Well, in St. Louis, they have this very unique style of pizza for two reasons primarily. One, it's pretty much the ultimate thin crust pizza. 
they make the crust without using any yeast. So when you cook it, you basically end up with this very thin cracker-like pizza. I was about to say, like Mm -hmm. a cracker. Yep, like a cracker. And then number two is the cheese. Now, most pizzas in the St. Louis area are topped with this cheese called Provol. Have you ever heard of Provol? No, I know Provolone. It is a relation to Provolone. So Provol is this processed cheese that was created by combining cheddar, Swiss, and provolone cheeses. Okay, that doesn't sound too bad. Right? So the result is this like Frankenstein cheese that's gooey and almost like buttery texture at room temp. And it also has a super low melting point, but it's not stringy the way that like mozzarella can be. Yeah. And apparently it was developed specifically for like the St. Louis market. There was this perceived demand that folks wanted pizza that would have a quote clean bite so have melty well melted cheese but be able to take a bite that breaks off without the stringiness of mozzarella okay yeah it was it was developed good yeah i mean it was developed in the 60s i get it i kind of picture elio's in my head a little bit when i think about like non-stringy cheese tiny bit yeah Which, it's weird, because Elio's was kind of shitty, mm-hmm. but once in a while, I'll have this weird craving for an Elio's pizza. Oh, yeah, that's just childhood knocking on your door. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> but this Provol cheese, it's pretty much not used outside of Missouri. So they use it for their pizza, which is basically this like super thin, cracker-like St. Louis pizza. And then the other St. Louis delicacy that's also associated with Provol is the Gerber sandwich. Have you ever heard okay. of that? No. Neither had I. And I'm not sure how I feel like feel about it. I feel like it'd be probably pretty darn good. So It sounds like baby food from the name. So It does. <laughs> it's not, though. It's basically a sandwich I could probably get behind. It's a loaf of Italian or French bread that you cut lengthwise, and then you smear it with garlic butter and top it with ham, provolone cheese, a little bit of paprika, and then you, like, toast it open face. It sounds pretty good. Yeah, I thought so. Uh, It's something that was created in St. Louis in the 1970s at a family-owned deli called Ruma's Deli, and they kind of named it after their neighbor and customer, Dick Gerber. And it was so popular that a bunch of other eateries slowly started adding this sandwich to their menu over the years. Alrighty. Uh, So, Eden, what do you think about these two Provol-associated dishes, the uh, St. Louis-style pizza and the Gerber sandwich? I would try both of them, honestly. I would try all the food that you've talked about. All right, good, good. That's kind of where I was at so far, because some people say like St. Louis cuisine can be kind of gross. There are some things that are questionable in certain, like they have like a sandwich that's basically an egg foo young sandwich that you can get at Chinese restaurants, and that's super weird. But other stuff sounds really yummy. All right, a couple more for you before I dive into my story, and I promise I'll tie it all together at the end. You better. (laughs) So now you've had your pizza, you've had your sandwich, and if you're in the mood for a quick snack when you're in the St. Louis area, why not try the local favorite spicy potato chip, Old Vienna Red Hot Ripplets. Okay, I'm down. They're these ridged or like ripple cut potato chips that are covered in a hot chili sauce and a sweet barbecue powdered seasoning. The label describes the flavor as St. Louis style hot sauce because, of course, St. Louis. Yeah. Now, according to Old Vienna's president and owner, Steve Hoffman, he says that the chip is so popular in the St. Louis area because of its unusual amount of spiciness. 
According to Hoffman, quote, it's highly seasoned and national companies don't want to season them that hot. Uh, in my research, I did find uh, one particular, it was kind of funny. It was like a feature piece in, in a St. Louis magazine. It was from somebody who wasn't from the city originally yeah. about their experience trying these chips for the first time. And they were just like, it was very spicy. Like they were like, hey, I needed milk afterwards. Wow. <laughs> Which I okay, was like, see, mm. for the longest time, like I've had a thing where I'm just like, this isn't spicy. Everyone says this is hot. This is not hot at all. What are they talking about? And then I bought this extra, 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 extra hot salsa at Wegmans and was just like, this isn't going to be even hot, but I'll try it, I guess. I was sweating. <laughs> and it was great. It was delicious. <laughs> See, good. Maybe maybe the Red Hot Ripless are like the perfect potato chip for you then. Like they're, maybe. They're I'll try you. it out. All right. All right. So so far, we're, uh, we're on, on for this culinary tour for you. Oh, yeah. And now, last but certainly not least dessert so in st louis they have a dessert called the gooey butter cake and frankly it's a crime that more people don't know about this lovely baked good in my opinion uh, it originated in st louis's german american community and gooey butter cake is basically this flat dense cake that's made of wheat cake flour butter sugar eggs it's usually only about an inch tall it kind of resembles brownies a little bit and okay. people will cut it uh cut them like brownies and then dust them with powdered sugar uh it's super rich it's very sweet but it's still a little bit firm so you can actually pick it up and eat it like a pastry okay uh it's best with coffee to cut the sweetness uh for me have you had this before i've had a version of it so for me i i know what butter cake is because growing up we had a similar german butter cake from philadelphia Oh. Except the Philly version is much more of a gooey pastry and it's not quite as firm. It's almost runny. So you kind of need like a fork to eat it. But it's it's so good. Like super good. It and, sounds good. And I have had similar ones that are firmer like the St. Louis one. Like usually if you buy it at a grocery store, it's more at the St. Louis variety. But I think I've seen like butter cakes and like little packages at like gas stations and stuff. Mm -hmm. I've just never tried it. Uh, yeah, if, if you if you're like a fan of vanilla flavors, butter cake is where it's at. Oh, I'll check it out then. So it is super sweet though. Like when you bite into it, you're like, ah, sugar. <laughs> so between the amount of sweet ass barbecue sauce and the loads of gooey butter cake the residents of St. Louis consume on an annual basis, it's not surprising that the subject of my story was able to set up a very successful dental practice in the city. Today, I'd like to tell you, Eden, about Glennon Engelman, a.k.a. The Killer Dentist. Ooh. I saw a movie like that back in the 90s. What, did it star Cor Corbin? Uh, oh, goodness. What's his name? He was on Psyched. Oh. Corbin Burnson. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Corbin Burnson. He was on Psyched in L.A. Law. I don't remember who was in it. I just remember that it was called Dr. Giggles, and it was terrible. Oh, Dr. Giggles. Yes. That was like, I feel like that fits into like the weird Wes Craven, like yeah horror movie library somewhere well there's nothing really to giggle about with uh dr engelman he is a monster for sure and i'm excited to tell you all about him all right now oftentimes people have a fear of a dentist and uh glennon engelman really wasn't that terrifying of a dentist he was actually really well respected in his local st louis community however what people didn't know is that he moonlighted as a hitman Oh. Yeah. 
At least that's the way it's usually described when someone mentions Engelman. But the crazy thing is, that's not even close to the full story. So born February 6th, 1927, Engelman was the youngest of four children in a middle-class St. Louis family. According to most accounts, he was a pretty normal child with an average or below-average academic record. Engelman enlisted in the U.S. Air Force after high school, and after he was discharged, he attended Washington University in St. Louis under the GI Bill. He eventually graduated with a degree in dentistry in 1954. Over the next several years, Engelman established a dental practice and cultivated reputation as a community-minded professional who was known for giving back to the community, including providing free dental service for some of the residents, the poorest residents of the city. So he had somewhat of a good side then. He did, but it seems like it could have all been a front, and I'll get into that oh, a little great. bit later. <laughs> Now, during this time, Engelman also became an avid hunter. According to friends and family, he bought all of the proper equipment and went out on several hunting trips, collecting several trophies like, you know, deer heads and various other animal parts that were later taxidermied. He even tried his hand at exotic and big game hunting. But after a couple of years, Engelman soon lost interest in the sport. Most investigators suspect that that's because Engelman really didn't lose interest in hunting, but he had moved on to hunting humans instead. Wonderful. Yep. Just what I wanted to hear. <laughs> now, we don't know exactly how many people Engelman killed over the years. He was an active. He was active for about, I think uh, it was about 30 years or 20 years. He was active for about 20 years we know of, but it could have been as, as high as th long as 30 years because we... Damn. Yeah, he didn't really uh, kind of get noticed until he started killing people for money. But there's a lot of uh, suspicion that he may have also just killed people for fun as well. And we just don't know about those crimes. Wonderful. Again, mm -hmm. very cheery story so far. Now, it seems most likely that his killings probably started around this time in the early 50s after he, or while he was still in college and while he was kind of bored of hunting animals. Now, according to interviews with psychologists that were conducted later after Engelman's arrest, he thoroughly enjoyed all aspects of planning and executing a murder. He enjoyed the aspect of slipping through the authorities' fingers, not quite getting caught, and always outsmarting them. Over time, his plans for murders grew more and more elaborate, and his methods of murder also evolved. He started with bludgeoning, then moved on to shooting. I mean, he had all those guns for hunting, after all. Yeah, right. And then, Don't let him go to waste, I guess. Exactly. Maybe. Yeah, all the equipment. And eventually, he got really creative with explosives, but more on that later. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, this guy is nuts, dude. Now, it's probably no surprise that Engelman was eventually diagnosed as a sociopath. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Especially given his glee in the act of planning murders and committing them and his complete lack of empathy and emotion around his crimes. Uh, he also had a very high IQ, even though he was only a mediocre student. Most tests scored him in the range of 140. Okay. He also exhibited another very common hallmark of psychopathy, manipulativeness. Now, Eden, as you know, sociopaths tend to try to seduce and ingratiate themselves with people, mostly yep. 
mostly because they either want to gain something or they find it entertaining. It's pretty much all about what other people can do for them. They're very superficially charming, that sort of thing. It's normally, and then when they have no more use for you, they'll tend to just walk away and you won't see them again. Exactly. And that that's something that Engelman totally did a lot. Um, and the weird thing I've noticed is like a lot of times you'll see like sociopaths described as like not necessarily charming, but just or charismatic, but they're really like good at, you know, seducing people, basically like getting them on yeah. their side because they're willing to tell them anything they need to. Uh, this seems very much to be the case with Engelman, especially when it came to women. Uh, I've seen pictures of the guy. He's pretty plain looking slash borderline unappealing or unattractive. But he had incredible luck with the ladies. Huh. Mm-hmm. He got married multiple times and seduced several of his patients and employees. Ooh, I don't like this guy very much. <laughs> <laughs> See, and that's what I mentioned earlier. It's kind of weird because he goes out of his way to seem like this upstanding, you know, member of the community who gives back. But really, he's like banging all, all these like bored housewives that come into his dental practice. Yeah, yeah. It's a little skeezy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, after a while, Engelman starts to use these relationships that he's having with uh, all of these women in his life as an easy way to further his murderous exploits and, at the same time, make a little money off the whole enterprise. Because why not? Be- exactly, because why not? Total sociopath. And that sociopathic attitude would eventually lead to his downfall. So now that I've talked a little bit about who uh, Engelman was, let's dive into the many murderous loves that he had throughout his career. Perfect. First up, there's his first wife, a woman named Ruth Ball. He married Ruth when they were both university students. She was well known as a pretty wild lady around St. Louis. In particular, she had this reputation for causing these like drunken dramatic scenes at local bars and would get kicked out a lot. Huh, okay. She Uh, sounds like a fun time. mm Mm-hmm. Now, things didn't work out for the couple, and they divorced by 1953. However, they continued to sleep together, and Engelman continued to provide Ruth with free dental care and money outside of their divorce arrangement for years That's afterwards. That's what I need in my life. <laughs> you know how expensive dental work is? Free dental work for life. <laughs> um, it's kind of crazy, too, because like this went on for years, like decades. Uh, I one of the sor- one of my sources even said that through this like you know years of this off and on again sexual liaison, Engelman and Ruth kind of considered each other like the ones that got away. Weird. And, okay. And there's some suspicion that uh, his murder for cash scheme was something that he and Ruth actually concocted after after they uh, broke up. So it sounds a little bit like they're both kind of uh, heavily damaged pe- people. So she could have possibly been some sort of, like, accessory, not necessarily accomplice, but, like, an accessory. Exactly. And it's through Ruth that investigators identified uh, Engelman the first time as possibly a killer. Oh. Now, when I talked about them planning this, like, planning some murder for hire together, they actually enacted this scheme. In 1958, Ruth married James Bullock. He was a 27-year-old clerk and part-time student. But less than six months after their marriage, Bullock was shot to death near the St. Louis Art Museum. Police suspected Engelman 
may be involved. I mean, he was the ex-husband after all. But he had a solid alibi for the time of Bullock's murder. It was actually his new wife who gave him an alibi. And eventually, the police couldn't prove anything, and the case was sort of dropped. Ruth collected $64,000 in life insurance, so about $580,000 in 2020 2020 cash. Sounds suspicious right away to me. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one can assume that Engelman also received a small chunk of this change in exchange for services rendered. Oh, yeah. Uh, And it's pretty clear that while the police had no proof, he was the one who shot and killed Bullock. So fast forward to 1963. Engelman's married still, this time to another woman, a librarian named Etta. And he was starting to run up some debt. He was looking around for a new business venture outside of his dental practice and hit upon a million-dollar idea to get rich quick. He was going to start a drag racing strip. Ooh. The first time I read that, I thought, he, I thought it said uh, drag strip club, and I was wrong. Uh, you were all about that for a second, though. <laughs> I was. I was. I was like, this is brilliant. Uh, no. <laughs> but it was a drag racing strip. It seems like a super weird idea to me, but like whatever, the 60s were a super weird time, and I guess they were kind of, you know, throwing everything at the wall to see what would stick. Yeah, why not? Now, to get this business off the ground, he actually had to build the the racing strip, so he started looking for business partners. Uh, And as he looked for business partners to help him get the construction underway, he hit up a former girlfriend and current patient whose husband, Eric Frey, owned a construction company. When the construction on the strip was almost finished, what seemed like a tragic accident took Frey's life. On September 26, 1963, Eric Frey was helping Engelman at the construction site when he fell into a well while carrying some dynamite and died in the ensuing explosion. I'm sure he fell. Sure. Mm-hmm, yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Engelman was All unharmed. Of course not. Exactly. He's so lucky, that guy. Uh, Though cleared of any wrongdoing, later investigators discovered that Engelman actually bludgeoned Frey with a rock, pushed him into the well, and then lit dynamite and threw it down after him. It's a very wily coyote scenario here. Yeah. I'm seeing Looney Tunes in my head right now. Right? Isn't that nuts? Like That's crazy. Uh, Frey's widow collected uh, $25,000 in life insurance and then pitched in $16,000 to keep the drag racing strip from failing and going under it didn't work though and the venture was completely bankrupt by 1964 and engelman went on drilling and filling at his dental practice (laughs) all right next up more murder for cash now this one is the first one that prosecutors really identified and it kind of was the keystone when they started looking more closely at engelman and finding the previous two murders that i just talked about Now, in 1976, Engelman used his manipulative prowess to convince his 24-year-old dental assistant, Carmen Miranda. Yes, that really was her name. Carmen Miranda? Yep, really was her name. I had to double-check it like three times. Wow, okay. Uh, He convinced her to marry a man named Peter Holm. She didn't really know Holm too well. She didn't love him, but Holm had a really large life insurance policy. Then, after their, shortly after their wedding, Holm was mysteriously shot in the head, and Miranda collected $75,000 from his life insurance company. 
that's a huge chunk of change. Today, that would oh, be yeah. almost like $350,000. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And of course, she gave Engelman $10,000 for services rendered. Of course. Right after this, Engelman started to get greedy. In 1977, he convinced an other former girlfriend named Barbara Boyle to marry a man named Ronald Guswell, who was the heir to his family's oil business. And only a few months after their wedding, Ronald Guswell's parents, Arthur and Vernetta, were horrifically murdered at their farmhouse in Edwardsville, Illinois. Arthur had been shot, and Vernetta was beaten to death with a blunt object. Cheery. Cheery. Shaken by this tragedy, Ronald managed to take over the family business. But he, too, was shot and then dumped in East St. Louis only 17 months later in 1979. Oh, wow. Wait, East St. Louis, Illinois? Mm, uh, East, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. Okay, so it's, it's back again. <laughs> yep, back. Apparently, that's like you said, it's kind of a, a more downtrodden kind of sketchy area yeah. back then. So. And apparently the perfect place to dump a body. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I did see that, and I immediately thought of your story, too. I'm like, oh, man, dumping more people in East St. Louis. Yeah, right? Ugh. I'm never going to East St. Louis ever in my life. <laughs> I know where the bodies are buried. It's East St. Louis. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to say that to, like, every crime that happens. <laughs> now, uh, Ronald's widow, Barbara, a.k.a. Engelman's ex-girlfriend, was set to inherit over a quarter of a million dollars from the family estate and another $190,000 from Ronald's life insurance. Now, this so she's making out with a lot of money. Yep, with a lot of money. And that amount of money was really what triggered the intense police scrutiny around the Guswell murders. And when they did a little digging, they discovered Barbara's connection to, you guessed it, Dr. Glennon Engelman. Investigators started to build the pattern around unexpected deaths and large insurance payouts. They all seem to be connected through women who associated with Engelman. Okay, good, because they had to start putting some of this together at least. Mm-hmm. Like the, he didn't really, he didn't even try to cover his tracks, really. Yeah. Now this is where it gets tricky. There really wasn't any hard evidence to back up investigators' suspicions. They needed something more concrete, so they started keeping tabs on Engelman starting in late 1979, and it was probably a good thing too. See, around this time, Engelman was sued by Sophia Marie Bar- Barrera, the owner of South St. Louis Dental Laboratory. Engelman owed her over $14,000 for dental lab work. Ooh, shit. Yeah, so she wasn't getting her money, so in she sued him. But then in January 1980, Barrera was killed when her car exploded outside of her Southside St. Louis lab. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, he's really not being slick about this at all. Nope. It's like that, that horrible car bomb scene in Casino is all I kept thinking about when I was reading oh, about yeah. this poor woman's death. I'm like, oh, so awful. Now, the police were 100% sure that Engelman was involved in this car bombing. They just needed to find a break and figure out how to link him because there was, again, not enough physical evidence. They couldn't find a break until his wife, named Ruth... Again, another wife named Ruth came you forward. You that name. He did. He had, a, he had a type, and her name was Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, Engelman had been bragging to his wife about setting the car bomb and that he had killed Barrera, and he also kind of hinted that he might do the same to Ruth if she told anyone about this. Either way, this is the first time she'd ever heard about her husband's homicidal leadings, and it freaked her out. Yeah. So she went to the police. 
She was afraid for her life, but she still agreed to work with the police and wear a wire in an effort to capture a confession from Engelman. About a month later, police had enough evidence to arrest Engelman for the murders of not only Sophia Marie Barrera, but Peter Ham and the Guswells. Nice. Police also arrested several of Engelman's accomplices, including Carmen Miranda, her brothers, Nick and Robert Handy, uh, as related to Peter Holmes' murder, and then they also arrested Brenda Boyle in connection to the Guswell murders. During Engelman's trial for Peter Holmes' murder, Miranda testified against him, and that resulted in a, in a guilty verdict and 50-year sentence for Engelman. Wow. Uh, later, he was tried for Barrera's car bombing death, and that also resulted in a guilty verdict and a life sentence for Engelman. Good. He should not be out of there again, ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then the final nail in this coffin was that one of uh, Miranda's brothers, who was trying to bargain for leniency with the police, gave them details about the Guswell murders, telling him that Engelman and Barbara Boyle, the widow, had been lovers for a long time before she even met Guswell, and that the two of them had actually targeted Ronald because of his money. Hmm. Barbara pursued him until she got a ring in her finger and a stake on the family money. Oh, my God. Uh, with his witness testimony, Engelman pled guilty to three murders and got three more life sentences. Barbara Boyle was convicted of her husband's slaying, and she was charged. Uh, she was sentenced to 50 years in prison, but she only served about 20 years. Clennon Engelman developed diabetes while he was on trial for these murders. And eventually he died of complications from diabetes in prison in 1999. Wow. Yeah. So that's the story of the hitman slash killer dentist. So he was a dentist and he died of diabetes, which is like, I always think of it as like a food related thing. Mm -hmm. So it kind of goes along with being a dentist or something you should at least avoid when being a dentist. Yep. Yep. Sugary foods, they're bad for you. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, I know you said this sounds a little bit like Dr. Giggles at the beginning, but I had to laugh because there's definitely a uh, horror film called The Dentist that is, like, directly based on Engelman's story. Or maybe that was the one. I don't know. I watched the trailer for it because I found it on YouTube, and it stars Corbin Bernstein from L.A. Law and Psych, and he's, like, this murderous dentist. And it's, so, it's like, from 1996, and it's so mid-'90s. It's, like, a little heartwarming. Um, until he snaps and starts killing people because his wife slept with the pool boy. It's it's yeah. It's so bizarre, dude. <laughs> yeah, no, I've seen the. De- I've definitely seen the dentist. Now I'm trying to think of what the hell Doctor Giggles was. Doctor, I think Doctor Giggles was like a surgeon, but it's been so long. Yeah, that was Doctor Giggles is from 1992. So yeah, okay, yeah, he is more of a. It's the dentist that I was initially thinking about, Ben. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So thoughts thoughts on on this story and i thought it was interesting because it was a hitman but he's like a hitman who just loves to kill people so he makes it work for him yeah like i mean i don't even know where to begin because this guy was very nutty mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um i just really just want to call him wily coyote now with that stick of dynamite down a whole thing Right, like a lot of the articles that I've read for this story said how he loved to plan out their murders. And I'm like, this dude is like literally sitting at home watching cartoons, thinking about how he can do this to people in real life. It's so messed up. Right. I mean, I enjoy planning too, but not that. <laughs> planning crafts. Planning. <laughs> exactly. Yes. How am I going to make the house look nice with stuff? 
how am I going to, you know, do some other weird art project that I have, but not, not murder. Not murder. Well, I applaud you for, for reining it in. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I have to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> so. Although I do have a glue gun and I'm not afraid to use it. Is it a hot glue gun or a warm glue gun? Oh, it's a hot glue gun. Ooh, that's dangerous. It is. It feels burny on my skin. <laughs> well, my sources for today's story were uh, Wikipedia, eatthis.com, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, health.com, theriches.com, and the New York Daily News. Thank you very much, Nicole. That was awesome. Yeah, you're welcome. I guess now we're going to take a short break. Yeah, we'll take a short break, and then we can come back, and it'll be your turn to wow him with a paranormal story. I have an interesting one for us this week, so it should be fun. Awesome. And we're back. We're back. Back and again. I, Sorry. Yes, we are. No, <laughs> that's fine. You can, you can M&M me anytime. I know who you're married to, so. <laughs> All right, I got a good story for us this week. I'm excited. My story takes place in Union, Missouri, which is a smaller town in Franklin County, about 50 miles or so outside of St. Louis. Its population as of 2010 was 10,204, but it's growing rapidly according to Wikipedia and is the fastest growing city in Franklin County. It's also the county seat and was made so one year after it was founded in 1826. It's 9.09 .09 square miles and has no water to speak of, even though Wikipedia also said that it was right alongside of the, and I'm going to apologize for the way I'm pronouncing this already, but Bourbes River. The river's name is actually French for muddy, I found out when trying to figure out how to pronounce it. And when the French lady said it, she just sounded like she was saying boobies in a French accent. So, <laughs> Speaking of names, the town's name of Union comes from the ideal of political unity. From what I can tell, there isn't a whole lot to do in Union. When researching things to do in Union, I mostly found parks and not a lot else of note there. I did find a winery in nearby uh, Beaufort called St. Jordan Creek Winery. I don't know why the population of this town is growing so fast, if there's literally nothing to do there, but maybe it has a little something to do with today's story, and its denizens are just paranormal junkies. This is the story of the Union, Missouri haunting. Okay. Now, Nicole, uh, you know that I love a good haunted house story, and this one takes the cake. What I'm about to tell you is seriously chilling and kind of balls-to-the-wall crazy, and we'll get to that later. All right. You promise? I do. All right. It was difficult to find a name for this story, really, which made research kind of tough, too. It's usually referred to as the Union, Missouri haunting or simply the Union haunting from most things that I found, but one referred to it as the Union screaming house. Oh. Um, to look at this house we're about to talk about, it's really nothing special. It looks just like, uh, like every other craftsman home that you've ever seen. It's white. It has a nice little porch, a gabled roof with the little windows that craftsmen are known for. Mm -hmm. The inside is pretty normal, too. You can go to paranormaltaskforce.com and look at all the pictures if you want. It has a really ugly kitchen that majorly needs an update. <laughs> uh, the only pictures that made me uncomfortable 
where the ones of the basement stairs, but basements are always just a little creepy unless they're like pristine finished ones. So did I tell you about my the incident on my basement stairs the other day? No. Well, I thought it was an incident, but I think I just have an overact active imagination since I don't leave the house anymore. But <laughs> my basement's a little creepy because it is like one of those old, like turn of the century stone basements and it has an old coal room up front that's still that's like not used anymore. Oh, so like mine, I have the coal chute and yes. everything's stone. Yeah, it's very similar to your basement, except my ceilings are listed. The floors are a little bit higher, so I don't have to duck going down there. <laughs> but my one cat is like fascinated by the basement, so he like always scampers down there when I open the door. And I was like, oh, man, why did he have to go down there again? And I turned the light on, and it looked like there was this like shadow person like stretching up the stairs. Ooh. And like I panicked for a second. And then I like moved my head to the left and the right, and I realized it was not a shadow person. It was simply the fact that the stairs were dirty in the center where we walk on them all the time. <laughs> yeah, I need to get out of the house more. <laughs> yeah, you do. Because that scared me. I was like, Nicole, I don't like this. I don't like this at all. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad that it was nothing. Continue your story about something, because I'm sure it'll be more exciting than mine. <laughs> Well, uh, to continue my story, I guess I will dig into a man named Stephen Lachance. Stephen lived in a small apartment in the area with his three children, a daughter and two sons. He's a single father and just wanted something a little better for his kids. His lease was up and he had lived there for about two years or so at the time. So he did, from what he assures us in his firsthand account of the events, an extensive search for rental properties in the area to no avail, and then gets this call one day from a woman telling him that she had a nice old house for rent. This is always how horror movies start, so just beware. Yeah, yeah, Stephen. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Yeah, a random call from a strange woman you don't know saying, I've got that house that you were looking for. Don't ask me how I got your information. Um, and just so everyone is aware, I was up for 24 hours when writing these notes because I'm a chronic insomniac with severe anxiety, which adds to the insomnia, which in and of itself causes anxiety. So you get the picture, and I hope this all does not sound too crazy. Uh, anyway, back to our story. Stephen decides to go to this open house for the property, which is happening that following Sunday after he receives the call. Stephen said that he and his kids were surprised to see this nice, big, white house and when they walked inside, they could smell cookies baking, which, if you didn't know, is actually a very common trick for realtors. It makes the place feel more like home to have something baking, or at least like that's the mindset of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, now, he says that he walked into the living room where cherub faces uh, were on the walls. I don't know if he means pictures or what, because I did not see any such adornments in the pictures that I saw of the house. I was expecting it to be like on the crown molding or, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I digress. So this house was in pretty good shape. It had the original woodwork and everything seemed good there. It had two floors with three bedrooms, a mud room. It all seemed pretty nice. The basement had a butcher's shower, which is just like a weird, in my opinion, prison-esque shower which is in the basements of some older homes. It's literally a shower head coming out of a wall or ceiling. Uh, if you're lucky, there's tile and maybe a wall for privacy. I'm not a fan of them. I've never, Have you ever seen one? I don't think so, but I got to Google this because the name in and of itself is a little 
unsettling. Butcher's shower. I guess it's so when they got done, like, you know, doing all that with the meat, they could shower all the blood off. I don't know. Yeah. It almost kind of, like, reminds me of those outdoor showers that you come across at beach houses. Yes. But inside a uh, house. There, mm. there was a cool thing about the basement, though, uh, because it did have a fruit cellar. Okay. So I thought that was pretty neat. They really liked this house after looking around and were very interested to move out of their tiny apartment and into this home that had more than enough space for everyone in the family. They got an application from the landlady and filled it out. So now here's something weird and sounds way too much like a horror movie. And yes, I have more to come on that later. But when he hands back the application, the landlady says to him, do you understand the responsibility that comes with living in an old house such as this? Ominous, foreboding, just no. Walk away, dude. In fact, just run. This lady has been seen in every horror movie, and unless you're a complete moron, you know what you're getting into now. I know. I'm like, uh, did she have a strange baby-like voice, perhaps? Yeah, right. So she said that she'd get back to him, and they left. However, that night, once they start to go to sleep, even before getting this house, the weirdness begins. First, Stephen wakes up to the sound of his one son screaming, and the kid ran into his dad's room and began shouting, Daddy, he was in my room. What? Yeah. He said that this shadowy figure, like the one on your stairs, um, <laughs> was in his bedroom watching him. Oh, we, and that's never happened before, huh? No like something followed them creepy exactly yes so steven had a nightmare of his own after this and this is really creepy in the dream he wakes up because we all love those ones you know where you just are in a dream and then wake up and you're still in a freaking dream mm -hmm. um he hears a voice in a gravelly voice say look at me see me uh no no thank yeah. you pass hard and pass. there's no there's no one there he calls out, but there's nothing, so he tries just to go back to sleep, and then he feels pressure on the bed like something is there with him, and this thing he can't, he just can't see, but he can feel, begins to crawl over him in bed. Oh, my, oh, thanks, I'm not yeah. going to sleep tonight. Exactly. Yeah, he felt our favorite thing, which is that pressure on his chest, so then he can move, you know, mm -hmm. so basic sleep paralysis stuff. And he didn't uh, have a cat, right? No. Okay. No, it's not your thing. Okay. <laughs> so the voice then says again, you know you want to look at me. Look at me for I am glorious. Oh, oh, okay. Stephen then says, dear God or oh my God, something to that effect, to which the apparition responds, God isn't here. God <gasps> doesn't exist. Um. It tells him to look again. And the pressure on him increases. He sees hands going to his neck when he looks and then focuses in on the thing in front of him, which he says looks like all those pictures that you see of Jesus. But if Jesus had been possessed. Ooh. He then simply wakes up, but obviously can't sleep after that. Yeah, uh, I would not be uh, down for some trying to sleep again. No, mm -mm. that's like I'm going to get up and turn all the lights on in my house and have some coffee. Call a priest, or better yet, burn the fucking house down, because no. <laughs> so a week later, the creep fest of a landlady calls back and says that she's decided to rent the home to him. At this point, I'd be like, no, thank you. Well, actually, I might say, okay, yes, please, because now I think my apartment's haunted. Right. I don't 
right? So the next day, he's supposed to go to a restaurant with her and sign the paperwork, which is super weird because I'm pretty sure that takes place in the home or in an office usually. But Stephen's like, sure, why not? Finally, on moving day, they're unloading their belongings and a car that was driving down the street just stops and stares at them for a minute, rolls down the window and shouts, hope you get along okay in there, and then speeds away. What? Yeah. So again, just like a horror movie, the four of them get through the first night without anything happening, but Stephen does notice something a little odd about the doors in the house. Okay. All of the inside doors had hook and latch locks, which are like the ones that like keep my attic door shut that mm -hmm. you've seen. Uh, but these were all placed on the outside of the doors as if to keep something inside rather than a way to lock yourself in the room weird so like because usually when i think of like hook and latch it's like to prevent the door from swinging out but these are like the opposite basically yeah okay so on the second day in the new house they're putting stuff away and steven is hanging this angel painting on the wall in the living room and every single time he hung this painting up it would crash back down to the ground it could be something or it could just be a shitty spot to hang a picture we don't know that's weird, though, because didn't he say he saw, like, cherub paintings or yes. something hanging in that same room? Exactly. Yeah. So I don't know. But later that day, the kids noticed from watching people outside that every single person walking down the street would cross the street before getting to their house as if no one knew about the house. Uh, no one who knew about the house wanted to come near it. Oh. That Sunday after church, they decided to work in the yard and noticed that although it was nearly summer, leaves were coming down from the trees in the backyard like it was fall. When Stephen asked his one son to get a hose out of the basement, he was gone for some time before Stephen heard a scream. He ran into the house and found his son in the kitchen shaking like a leaf and he had peed himself. And he asked what happened and his son said, something chased me up the basement stair stairs. Uh, that's fucking terrifying. Exactly, especially with what we just talked about with you in your basement. Yes. <laughs> so he asked him uh, what chased him, and he said, I don't know, Daddy, but it was big. <gasps> yeah, really mm -mm. creepy. And I know we've all had that thing, like especially if we don't have overhead lighting, where we'll turn off the switch and then run the hell up the stairs <laughs> to get out of the dark basement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's what this is reminding me of, except creepier. Mm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, the other two kids didn't believe him, and they started making fun of him a bit, and then nothing happened again until Monday. They started noticing that every time they would leave the house, they'd come back and find all of the lights on. Which is paranormal activity that I've seen in other locations that we've talked about. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a common one. Yeah, for sure. So, Stephen thought maybe someone had broken in the first couple of times, which I, I would think too, you know? But when he looked around for an intruder, he found no one and no sign that anyone had even been there other than them. There were also weird cold spots they began to notice throughout the house. It was about a 30 degree difference, he said. Wow, that's like super drastic. That's like walking into like air conditioning in the summer. Exactly. Yeah, you, that's something you feel. Uh, the first time they noticed it, he said he felt a weird presence move through him that felt like an electrical current. Hmm. On Sunday night of that week, Stephen saw his first entity in the home. 
he and the kids were just sitting around talking and he saw this figure in the living room. His kids were facing the other way, which he said that he was thankful for. But the figure in the living room was one of those corner of the eye type things. Mm -hmm. So you see it out of the corner of your eye and then you look over directly at it and it's gone. Creepy. Yeah. He said that he saw something move and stand in the doorway to the kitchen. He was, uh, let me say that again. He said it was a dark figure of a man. I am like already not excited about this story anymore. And I'm like, I, this, this is going to leave me with like issues, Eden. I just want to say no, that now. It's creepy as hell. I've been saving this one for Missouri. Oh, wonderful. You knew. No, I found out about this a long time ago when a friend told me and I was like, this is batshit insane. I'm going to cover this one. <laughs> um, So he says that the figure was pretty solid, but it was made up of black smoke. And he then saw him move into the living room before vanishing a few minutes later. After this, Stephen decided to do the smart thing since he had absolutely no idea what was up with this entity. And he gathered up the kids and was like, let's go visit grandma. And they left the house. Uh, yeah, good move, Stephen. Exactly. He was about to lock the door when he says he heard the sound of a man screaming coming from behind the front door inside the house. What? Yeah, that's when he was kind of like, fuck this, and they make a run for the car. The creepiest part of all of this is that while they were driving down the street away from the house, his son looked back and said, Daddy, the basement monster is standing in the upstairs window. Oh, no, nope, 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 nope. Mm -mm. Yeah, fuck that. I'm mm -mm. out at this point. Major nope. Mm -mm. So the next day, Stephen had a business trip in Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, that he had to go to. So he was able to leave the kids with grandma and hopefully take a break from this freaky new home. He'd be out of his house and it wasn't like he had to worry about the kids either since they were safely out of the house as well. Mm -hmm. So he could just relax for a bit and not have to deal with the creepy smoke demons. The next weekend, when everyone was back in the house, he decided to call the landlady again. Yes, that's right. He calls the creep best of a landlady and asks her up front if the place is in fact haunted or not. At first, the landlady said she couldn't remember if anyone had said anything about it, but then she said one former tenant said that her deceased father would come visit her from time to time in the house. I can't remember if, if anyone said, oh, I, whatever, lady. Ugh. Right? I don't like her. Mm-mm. So they had also found some stuff in the shed out back that belonged to other tenants. And when asking about it, the landlady said that belonged to the same woman, but she refused to pick up her stuff when asked. When he went on to ask her more about the stuff in the shed, since it looked like it belonged to more than just one person, she told him the rest of the stuff in there belonged to a man that used to live there, but mysteriously just up and left one night and never came back. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but at this point, you should definitely know this lady knows way more than she's letting on because that's too much. No one wants to come back to this house. And you said you can't remember if anyone said it was haunted. Yeah. Okay. Totally believable. Yeah. Uh-uh. I don't like her either. She seems really sketchy. Yeah, exactly. I agree. So Stephen decided he's just going to suck it up and pretend nothing is going to happen again. And nothing does, actually, until Monday night when he's on the phone with his mom. 
the kids were off playing in his bedroom, and he and his mom are just talking on the phone when all of a sudden, the doors in the house just begin to rattle for no reason at all. He thought it was the kids at first and yelled at them to knock it off as you would if you have small children. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The rattling keeps getting louder and he just keeps yelling at the kids to behave instead of assuming that it might be the scary ass malevolent entity living in the room, living in the house, but whatever. So he can be dumb if he wants to. I'll give up on caring anymore. <laughs> I know no one ever listens to me. So finally... When, they, when it gets really loud, he yells again, and his daughter comes out and calmly explains that she was just quietly reading, and both of her brothers are already asleep. Mm -mm. So after that, Stephen says the temperature just drops by 30 degrees again, and he starts to feel that electrical feeling all through his body again, and the room starts to smell foul. That's like some demon shit, and your ass needs to leave right now. Just go. Mm-hmm. Then he began to hear a scream again, growing louder and louder. He said that next, the whole house began to shake, and he could hear something coming down from the stairs above him. What? Now, remember that, yeah, remember both boys are asleep at this time, and guess where those stairs lead to? The bedroom that they're in. Ugh. So he hears the sound of one of his kids screaming at this point in unison with the screaming coming from nowhere. He bolts to the bedroom, but he can't get the door open. After he throws himself at the door for what feels like an eternity, the bedroom door finally opens. He gets the kids and tells the one boy to get the other and run out to the car. His daughter just isn't reacting at all now, and she just kind of seems dazed. So he says that he had to slap her across the face and tell her to run out the door. Mm. He says that they all made it to the car, pulled away from the house, and parked down the street where he was waiting for his parents to come help. Uh, he said that he could still see the house from where the car was, and he could also see the figure he had spotted before moving around the house searching for them. Oh, my God. Yeah, they didn't stay in the house again after this, thank God, with good reason, you know. Um, he never took the kids back to the house, and even when just getting their things, he refused to go in alone and says everyone he brought with him to help move out experienced something too while they were in the house, whether it was a scream, a whisper, or something else. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. Burn this house down. I know. Apparently, the parting words from the landlady when he gave her back the key were some people are meant to live in old houses and some people aren't. I never thought you were the old house type. Oh, creepy. Yeah. So since they moved out, Stephen says that he was told by someone he knew that a police car was seen outside the house and the new family who had just moved in were all running out of the house in pajamas heading for said police car. He was able to find out online that the house has a long history dating back to the Civil War, which might explain some of the activity. He also said the landlady couldn't get more people to rent the house, so she turned it into a dog kennel instead. The fuck? I would not leave my beloved family pet there. No, poor doggies. So now, if that isn't the scariest thing you've heard in a long time, I don't know what is, but honestly, I wouldn't get too upset over it because I have a strong su suspicion that it isn't real or is highly exaggerated. I mean, I'm upset about this, but also thank God. <laughs> yes. 
My reason for saying this is because first off, everything happening here just screams horror movie from the imagery, the dialogue, all of it. And everything that I told you was from his firsthand account. Hmm. Um, it just sounds like way too much is going on. It had that creepy landlady, the slow buildup, and then boom, and everything just seemed over the top. The other thing that makes me feel like this might be bullshit is Stephen Lachance himself. Okay, so you rent this house and it's haunted. Fine. You write a book about it. Also fine. But what leads me to believe that it might be fabricated is two main things. One, he needed the money that book would bring in. Why not rent a, pl why not rent a place and say it's haunted, write a book about it, and say it's all real? The thing that really makes me believe that it's fake, though, is that he wrote a follow-up book about it, and although I couldn't find out a lot of information on it, the description made it sound like it might be fiction. Hmm. Uh, I read some reviews on it, and it seems like half the book is him complaining about his ex-wife, so I don't really know. But it all just seems fishy to me. Yeah. So everything with him just seems flashy and over the top. Uh, he's an actual horror author now, writing fiction from what I could tell. Uh, so I really don't know what to think. I don't want to directly say that he lied, but it all just seems like a bit too much for me. What do you think? Is this an Amityville type thing for you or? I mean, one, the story is fucking terrifying. Yes. And it probably would make a good movie. He should really talk to somebody about selling the screenplay rights. But two, oh, now that like you kind of give this additional context of like, yes, and now he's gone on to become this like horror novelist. It does beg disbelief. I just feel like it, you're right. It's very paced the way you'd pace a story. It definitely has like mm -hmm. a kind of three act structure. Yes. And it's just interesting because I feel like other hauntings aren't really that way. It's sort of like there is no like rhyme or reason or pace to it. It's like things are fine for a while. And this just seemed like it was like legit, like constant and constantly like just. It seems like too much. I feel like other places that are haunted, it's reflective of the people who live there. So it's, you know, normal. But then in times of stress, you'll see a lot more yes. activity in the house. And also, like, my final thought is just if you've experienced something this fucking terrifying, as he said, he and his kids did. I feel like the last type of fiction I would ever want to write would be horror fiction. Exactly. Like, I, that would I not be my too. thing. I, I, right? It's like, I've mm. experienced some scary shit, like some like scary haunting shit before. And I still love, you know, everything supernatural, but it's never been as crazy as this freaking house was. Mm -hmm. Just that thing, like, like that dream that he had with like the, the Jesus figure that was possessed is possibly the scariest image to ever come into my mind. Mm -hmm. Like, so I don't know. I couldn't, I don't think I could after that, you know? Yeah, it was like it would be like you 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 work you could work through that trauma, but it would be in a different way. <laughs> like, yeah, and then also to write like a weird sequel. Yeah, it yeah. just seems really weird. I mean, I'm it's... hoping it's fake because I don't want anything like this existing ever. Exactly, I'm gonna burn that house down, and if it is all fake, I want to watch that movie because it's gonna scare the crap out of me. I actually tried looking for you know, other information, like as far as like the background of the house and stuff like that. And there was some vague things, but not a lot. So I don't know where he found the information. Mm -hmm. um, 
and also like I couldn't find any accounts from anyone else that lived there or people that live nearby saying anything about the house. And plus there's I other couldn't th- find any of that. Yeah, and plus there's like other things that don't make sense. It's kind of like so and it's two things that stick out to me. Like he says that there's like a history going back to the Civil War, but it's like a craftsman style house, which are very like, you know, twentieth century, like turn of the century, yeah. those started being built. So it's kinda of like, are you talking about the Because It's not the same house. Yeah. Because those were sold as a complete kit, you know? Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is about the neighbors, how like people would cross the street because they didn't want to walk in front of the house. Like, I don't know. I, I know quite a few folks from the Midwest and I feel like if there was a creepy house on the block where like people move in and out and like people knew that there was some bad juju going on that they would literally be like, hey, so I saw you just moved in. Uh, just exactly. a little word of advice. Like, I feel like people would say something like, hey, be careful. Like, you know, we've heard creepy things. But no, they're just going to cross the street and s- scream things from their car. Like, come on. Exactly. Like, I feel people would have said something. And, you know, there would have been neighborhood kids coming around being like, this is the house where blah, 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 blah. You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or if it really was haunted, it could have gone the other way. Where it's like people, like, you know, egg it all the time. Or like, you know what I oh, mean? yeah. And like vandalize it. That's true, too. So, I mean, hey, if anyone's ever in Union, check out this house. I'm going to try to find the address. <laughs> <laughs> um, my sources for this week were ParanormalTaskForce.com, LegendsOfAmerica.com, an episode of Scared to Death titled Visibly Shaken, iHorror.com, the book The Uninvited, The True Story of the Union Screaming House, uh, which is the book by Stephen Lachance. And then Stephen's Facebook page for the house as well that he also has. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for sharing this story, Eden. I'm glad you kind of kept it in your back pocket until we got to Missouri. Oh, yeah. I've been waiting for this one. <laughs> well, I guess that's our show for today. Plug the pluggables? Yeah, I guess it's time. I guess it's time. Okay. If you guys would like to reach out and email us, uh, you can do that at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can also follow us on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Roadside Horror Show, and we are on Twitter at Roadside Horror. You can also visit our website, which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. And if you're so inclined, we'd super appreciate if you could take a moment to rate and review our show on the pod platform of your choice. It always helps other folks find our show. It can really encourage people to check us out and give us a chance and some crazy kids telling you stories about true crime and paranormal things <laughs> as always we would like to thank yox rocks designs for our logo and emassy for our intro and outro music uh, until next time roadsters creep, creep on, on creeping creep on, on.